The Ascent of Board Games is a podcast in which we discuss the history and evolution of board game mechanics, concepts, and themes from the dawn of history to today's newest releases. We talk, we laugh, we pick on each other, and we occasionally get things wrong. But we hope to provide both entertainment and education to today's discerning podcast listener, you. Previously, on the Ascent of Board Games. Heartbreakers, those games we really expected to love or wanted to love and maybe still want to love, but you just can't. No, uh, I fully no, admit. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, no, uh, no. Hey, 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 hey! <laughs> Frank, you can't tell a man how to feel in his heart. If you describe the play of a game as managed to get through, <laughs> that doesn't lead me to think that it's good. This was my first board game Kickstarter. Boy, was it a bad introduction to that experience. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bad game. You've given up Kickstarter for Lent? <laughs> Frank, are you no, dying? What's no. going on? <laughs> it was painfully hard without being fun. And now we continue with Heartbreakers Part 2. Joe, it's time. It's time. Finally, we all find ourselves here today to talk about Seafall, which was published by Plat Hat Games and designed by Rab Davio and J.R. Honeycutt, released in 2016. Ah, Seafall. <sighs> Seafall. Seafall. We've talked about it a fair amount. I don't know that we need to totally deep dive into it. Suffice to say that after Risk Legacy and then both Pandemic Legacy Season 1 and Season 2, our gaming group had very high expectations for this game. And ultimately, I think the thing that, and like even Rob has said this himself, I think the thing that makes this game not the game it should be is lack of testing and lack of strong editor to remove the pieces that were not important. So the game implies that there are many paths to victory at the start of the game and even gives you ways to gain points mm -hmm. from an in-game standpoint that imply that there would be multiple paths to victory. And sadly, over the course of the first half of the game, what starts as looking like multiple paths of victory turns out that, no, you should just be exploring. That's where all the points are. And it, for me, was a very personally bad experience because I was instead doing civilization building. I was like, oh, cool. Well, Mike and John, who are in our specific game of Seafall, were doing exploration. I'm like, cool. They can go have fun doing exploration. Sean and I were fighting over doing economy building we're like well cool we both have separate paths to victory right and well you know you know some will be good sometimes some will be good at different time but you know we'll kind of go back and forth on who wins and then about halfway through the game it becomes very obvious that no the economic stuff is all just a giant trap and if you're doing it you're wasting your time that's not where any of the fun is anyway where all the fun is is exploring it also has where all the points are so die in a fire function <laughs> Yeah, it didn't get the development time it needed, and there were some super cool ideas in this game. The is still, I think, one of the coolest moments when that was revealed in the game and how it worked was one of my favorites. It needed to be trimmed down. A lot of extraneous stuff needed to be pulled out, and it wasn't. And like we said, we, we talked about this a lot in our Legacy episode with Rob Davio, and he was the first to admit that it wasn't the game he wanted it to be. This was on my list as well. We were so hyped for this, because everything he had done so far in the Legacy space had just been fantastic, and this one just crashed and burned for us. I still didn't hate it as much as most people, although the final game, the ending, was so bad. And it started falling apart a little bit before that. But yeah, I didn't loathe it. We played it with three, though, and that leaves some space for the exploration-y parts of the game to kind of shine still without getting crowded out. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Because we were playing it with the full five, and you just couldn't have everyone doing everything, right? You had to kind of... Oh yeah, totally. So someone's going to get basically shut out of the game completely. Right, someone's going to get shut out of the game, which is like just Joe. really god-awful design. <laughs> yeah. The best part about Seafall being a terrible game is that because it was a legacy game, we continued playing it well past the point where I personally had any investment in the game whatsoever. Like, literally, we would be playing the game and I would be working on my next RPG campaign while we were playing. <laughs> it drove some of my friends crazy and they can suck it. But <laughs> that's one of the, specifically Seafall, that's the reason, like, in some ways, Seafall is what started this list because, like, the memory of sitting there playing this game that I had stopped caring about in any way because it had done this thing to me, but we were still doing this because this was the thing that our group was doing. Eventually, we did stop. Eventually, we did we stop. Said, you know what? 
none of us are going to do this anymore, so we just basically opened the rest of the boxes and read the cards to see what was going to happen, and we made the right choice for where we were. But those couple of games where I was totally checked out and everyone else was still trying to play, very vivid moment in terms of not liking a game. Because normally you discover you don't like a game and then you stop playing it. And that's not what happened with Seafall. Yes, we wouldn't let you stop. Exactly. And I want to apologize on behalf of past me. I'm just imagining Joe, like, tied to the mast of one of your ships <laughs> and dragged <laughs> along his campaign. <laughs> that sounds pretty miserable. It was not our best gaming moment, to be sure. As some examples of games that you should play instead of Seafall, play any of Rabdavio's other legacy games. Like, Pandemic Season 1 and Season 2 are amazing. Even Risk Legacy is really good. I mean, it's still Risk, but it's still really good. It's very clever. But Trail's also good. Functionally, all the other games he's made have been great. Not Machikoro. Machikoro Legacy is any good? Okay, that's fair. Yeah. It's a categorically different experience. So I am playing Machikoro right now with a five-year-old and a six-year-old. It is a perfectly good game to play with young children. They are both enjoying it. It's Machi Koro, so basically souped up Yahtzee. But like, it's fine. I'm going to come to the defense of Machi Koro Legacy as a preferred version of Machi Koro. One other one that I might throw in there, we've only just started it before lockdown happened, but Clank Legacy seems pretty promising. Oh yeah. I agree. The next one on my list is is a little bit of an outlier because it's from a designer that their style of games, while very good, isn't usually something I'm into. But they're a very highly regarded designer. Their games are usually good. And this was set, it was based on one of my favorite short stories by one of my very favorite authors. And that is A Study in Emerald, 2013 from Treefrog Games, designed by Martin Wallace. Now, I mean, Martin Wallace is an extremely successful game designer. He does stuff that is more on the heavy Euro side of things, which is not usually my jam, but I will play them sometimes when I'm in the mood. It's based on a short story by Neil Gaiman, which I don't want to spoil because it's great and you can find it on uh, Neil Gaiman's website. But it basically crosses the Call of Cthulhu mythos with Sherlock Holmes in Victorian England, and it's amazing. And so, despite the fact that this was going to be a little bit more Euro-y, I, I wanted to get into it. It is a hidden teams game where you've got two different sides that are each trying to achieve their diametrically opposite goals. You don't know who is on your team, but you sort of want to make sure everybody on your team is doing reasonably well, because whichever team has the lowest score, just all of them lose, and then the highest scoring player on the highest scoring team is the single winner. So it's got a little bit of the win better thing, which is not a favorite. But there's just too many things going on that can fundamentally waste a lot of time. Somebody takes an action, and then somebody on the other team does something which basically negates that action. So both of them have wasted their turn and nothing has happened. There are additional things that come in, sometimes changing the game quite significantly, where you have vampires and zombies showing up, which aren't really part of the idiom of the game and it's fine i guess there's a lot of randomness in it there's a lot of special case rules and you know things that change around you can you may wind up changing sides in the middle of the game it's just a lot of sound and fury and fiddliness that doesn't really seem to go anywhere there is a second edition which smooths out some of the randomness takes away a little bit of the take that it's a little more streamlined but i I feel like the core issues of randomness uh, are still there there are a lot of people who love this game part of me wants to give it another try but i'm reminded of the comedian who was talking about going back to to date someone you broke up with and it's like you go into the refrigerator and you open the milk carton you smell it and oh this is awful and you put it back and say maybe it'll be better tomorrow I know. And uh, I I don't think this game is going to be better tomorrow. For me. I think you've missed another thing on this game that does not help literally any of the things that you've discussed, and that is the board itself. The board is pretty ugly and hard to read. It's it's bad. Real bad. And for a setting that potentially had so much flavor, it just kind of fell down. Yeah, this is one of those games when we first played it and everyone was like in love with it. It was one of those moments where you're like, are are we just crazy? Are we just missing something? Are we playing it wrong? Yep. And it's certainly possible because there have been games like that where we've played one game and we either misunderstood something or we didn't grok the strategy or anything like that. But I remember like halfway through the game, we were just kind of looking at each other and was like, is this, is, is this all we've got? Is this what we're doing? Yeah, it seems uh, yeah. a little vanilla, really. And yeah, I still have my copy, yeah. but... I don't know why. 
What games would you play instead, Brian? See, this is one that I've, I've had a hard time replacing. If you want the Euro-y bits, certainly Martin Wallace's other games, Brass, I think, is, is the big one. If you've got the sort of hidden team things that interest you, and as it turns out, we did a whole episode on that. Battlestar Galactic is kind of a classic of the genre. You have hidden teams and really excellent theming, and as long as you choose your uh, expansions wisely, you'll, you'll have a good time. I would pick a Martin Wallace game that is on no one's radar. I practically got given a copy of the second edition because no one liked it. It's called Moon Guy Invaders. And you probably are going, what? I've not that really... exactly the face I was making. Yeah, totally. It's a kind of a kaiju battle game with some Euro elements then it's by Martin Wallace. It was originally designed for, as a limited, like 250 copy edition released at an Italian games festival and uh, then later released in a kind of miniatures nice but it's a kind of euro-ish battle game where you increase the powers of your guys and it's really good and really unlike I mean you can tell it's Martin Wallace but it really doesn't fit into that heavy euro category one other thing that I learned about while I was researching this is there's another game by Martin Wallace called Australia with a Z Mm -hmm. uh, instead of the S, which is apparently like a sequel, sort of, to Study in Emerald. It's basically Australia is, is where the old gods and their cultist followers have gone to sort of lick their wounds after the, the war that took place in the Study in Emerald. Looks like more of a war game, but eventually the old ones wake up and start getting involved. And uh, I don't think it's a game I'd like, but it's just very interesting that there's this sort of oddball sequel out to this game. Yeah, I have heard good things about that one, though. Okay. So that one might be worth a shot. That brings me to my second foray into um, Fantasy Flight LCGs. Warhammer 40k Conquest, which is a game that had so much potential. Published by Fantasy Flight, as previously mentioned. Designed by Brett Andres, Nate French, and Eric M. Lang in 2014. I think this was a game that I could have really gotten into as a way to experience 40k because our group's expedition into the miniatures game kind of petered out quickly. And this one had kind of everything that was present in the miniatures game in some form. And by that, I mean each of the factions were pretty well represented. You would basically play a territory control, location based card battle game. I mean, it was probably not the most innovative card game out there, but it was fun. And that's uh, saying something for Fantasy Flight's LCGs, because uh, the competitive LCG scene, I've had a really hard time breaking into, and I thought this was going to be it. But then this happened to come out in 2014, right about the time when Games Workshop decided they're going to take all their toys and go home the licensing agreement that existed between Fantasy Flight and Games Workshop ceased to exist. Thus, this game ceased to exist after like half a cycle, which was not enough cards to support it. Really wanted to like this game, but because of politics, no. They had a decent amount of releases, though, didn't they, Mike? You know, they had the core box, and then they had the expansion box that had like the Necrons and stuff. Did they? I I, oh, think, yeah. I think all the major 40k races got at least something. It technically had 20 expansions, but like those are all those mini ones. There, But there was one big box, which was Legions of Death in 2016. Okay, yeah. so they got through one of their cycles, which yeah. I don't love the competitive LCG scene, but I, I think this was, if I was going to get into any of them, this was going to be the one. I lied, it was two big boxes, sorry. Well, damn it, I've been <laughs> lied to. This is definitely a case of what could have been. I think the big thing about this game that I had a hard time understanding is why did they limit it to two players? Because the format yeah. they had could have very easily worked with a four-player battle royale type thing. Like, they could have done a lot with it. I think a lot of that is because at the time, the Netrunner game was super popular in the competitive tournament scene yep. and they were still trying to capture that audience which i think was kind of a mistake and like people who love competitive lcgs really love them 
I've got all of it, Mike, so we should definitely play some of it, because there's definitely factions I've never even seen what they do. But uh, I quite enjoyed it. I completely agree with you that it could definitely benefit from being more than two-player, because it's basically you're just struggling over control of planets, and whoever gets enough planets with certain icons wins. So having more players, I don't see why that would be a problem, because all the combat happens on the planet. You're not attacking players directly, necessarily. So I should probably take a look and see if anyone on the geeks come up with a, a way of doing that. And it'd be pretty easy to extrapolate it you would think i know that surprisingly there's still a very engaged fan community that still does their own cards and their own tournaments and stuff and i'm pretty sure they're even on tabletop simulator these days so maybe you want to check that out i might need to i would definitely play that i picked up a couple eldar decks because that's my jam in the 40k <laughs> universe and uh, i would like to give it a try i played a, a tau deck and totally wrecked courtney and that was the last time we played that game <laughs> <laughs> i'm picking up a pattern here jason i'm not quite sure i may be imagining it <laughs> And unfortunately, because I can't allow a single episode of our podcast to go by without mentioning it, most <laughs> of my LCG brain space is still being taken up by Arkham Horror. I'm shocked. I have actually been told that some of the ideas they had for it have carried over into the um, L5R card game. Yeah, the whole thing about fighting over locations and that, it looks a lot like L5R. And that is one that has been going on for years and years and years. You know, I've read a couple of articles about the L5R card game where they've done these big sweeping box releases based on the outcome of tournaments and stuff like that. So like if a certain faction wins at a tournament, they might get a slightly more prominent position in the next release cycle. I really like that as a concept for a game like that's really cool and i would have liked to see them apply that with the 40k universe where it's like hey if the chaos marines are winning they're going to become much more of a thing in the next cycle like that's cool i like that that was very cool from a card game perspective for the l5r stuff i was also involved in a long-term living role-playing game campaign and so there would be plot lines that were going on in the campaign, and then somebody playing, you know, the Shadowlands faction would win the grand tournament, and then all of a sudden people had to scramble to change what was going on in the RPG plot line. Really? Um, I yeah. had no idea that they even crossed over. Well, I mean, after it happened a couple times, that like the next series of Heroes of Orkagon was like, we're just going to set ours in a completely different timeline, and you guys, you guys do what you're going to do, because we don't want to go through that again. Oh, huh. Yeah, so, I mean, I still look fondly back at the summer romance that I had with Warhammer 40k Conquest, and I do think about those times fondly, but, uh, well, then she got tied up in legal problems, and she was just never the same after that. Yeah, we all have a type, don't we? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I gotta admit, one of my... Uh kind of fatal flaws and weak spots is a uh, talisman i do really like talisman talisman clones i'm sorry prophecy is probably my favorite game relic which was kind of a 40k talisman i really adore and the guy who designed talismans named bob harris he only ever really did talisman that was it except for one other game called mythgardia this was self-published by Bob Harris in 2009, and it's like Talisman taking several steps backwards. The original was a handmade production of 100 copies. This takes place over like five little islands, continents, some really special art. Oh yeah, and the, the second edition, if you look at the Mythgardia page, is actually worse. <laughs> I'm going to paint our audience a beautiful picture here. This looks like a fifth grader <laughs> has drawn out the world map for his D&D &D campaign and is very proud of it. Oh, yeah. You're, you're not wrong. <laughs> not even a little wrong. Wow. It's, uh... it's done in MS Paint? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's done with Sharpies and pencil. I mean, I still think Castle of Magic wins, but this is right up there. So, you know, Talisman actually has a decent sense of progression. You get more items. You know, you go in the, the inner layer where stuff gets a little more dangerous. Cards stay out on the board, so you can actually often go after something someone just wasn't big enough to take. Because if, you know, if you lose to something, it stays on the board and just clogs up until someone's big enough to take it. So there's kind of progression in that advancement even in Talisman. Now, suppose you took Talisman 
added a lot more event cards, but don't let them put on the board. Take away the items, and instead of the spell card, just add some, well, basic take that cards. I think they're called fate cards. And uh, you'd have Mythdardia, which takes the cool advancement, even though it's kind of early, that's in Talisman, and just removes it. You see that very handmade art. I think it comes with some golf pencils and pads for keeping track of your hit points and everything. Yeah, it's totally old school. And Even though I don't mind the old school stuff, but I was expecting some kind of advancement or at least something that was like Talisman. But no, no, it just didn't. It, no. Wow, it's, this really does look like a fifth grader is trying to make a D&D campaign. Like, I think I've made this game. <laughs> I know. And consider Talisman is everywhere. I mean, there's Kingdom Hearts Talisman. Batman Talisman. Several editions. I mean, it's in the fifth edition, I think, now. Oh my god, I, I just looked at this page and realized that this game came out in 2009. <laughs> yeah. That's, wow. That's just mind-boggling to me. I know. I, I think you mean 1989. <laughs> I mean, that would have been my guess. If that. I mean, we're talking 60s, 70s, I don't know, yeah. So we're recommending Prophecy here, is what I'm hearing? Oh yeah, totally. Prophecy. Uh, actually, Relic, I think, is of the core talisman, talisman things. Oh, Relic's awesome. I know, Relic's great. We actually played it a while back, and it was basically talisman. More grimdark than talisman. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's true, yes. Yeah. Prophecy's definitely the one to go. Jason? What's next on your getting hit parade? <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of us on this podcast are big fans of Chip Theory games. They're kind of famous for uh, Too Many Bones, which uh, I'm a, personally a huge fan of. I'm looking forward to playing the, the latest expansion they just released. They came out with another new IP game for themselves called Crowdspire in 2019, designed by the brothers Josh and Adam Carlson and John Wilgus. Their idea here was they wanted to build their own kind of MOBA-style game, but on a board game, right? You've got towers that shoot minions, you've got hero units that level up and get powers, and you're trying to get to the enemy fortress and destroy it. That's kind of the, the gist of the game. Being chip theory games, it has tons and tons and tons of heavy, very nice poker chips. They went way heavy into the neoprene mats this time. The actual game board is composed of nothing but neoprene mats, and sometimes layered neoprene mats. And the, the bases that the people use have little, like, you know, pegs that you stick into the neoprene mats to indicate upgrades that they've got. Looked promising. Can't say I'm a MOBA fan. I don't really like the video games, but I liked the concept and I thought the gameplay looked interesting. Now, the reason this is on Heartbreakers for me is because when they were designing this and when they were running the Kickstarter, they made it big to do about, oh, we're going to have a solo version and we're going to have a co-op version. I'm like, oh, cool. This is something me and Courtney can play at home. It looks like one of those games that, like, as you get into, like, four-player territory, it's probably just a big, long slog because you've got, oh, you know, 25 minions to move and not really the experience I was looking for. But co-op, great. Me and Courtney can just go beat up on some, you know, automated enemies. It'll be fun. We'll have some fun playing that. Well, if they didn't tell you in the Kickstarter, at least if they did, I didn't catch on to it. These solo slash co-op scenarios really break down to more of a, uh, you'll appreciate this, Mike, more of a Legends of Andor style play where it's, hey, this isn't a game. This is a puzzle. And there's one right answer. Figure it out. And so me <laughs> and Courtney have tried this thing a couple of times. You play this version of the game, it cuts out entire sections of the actual game. There's no marketplace phase, you don't buy upgrades or anything like that. It gets rid of the event cards, which from what I understand people don't like anyway. And it's really like, here's the resources you have, here's the units you have, here's the enemy layout, go do this thing. And as far as I can tell, it's one of those things where it's like, well, I hope you figured out the puzzle before you moved your unit, because you moved the wrong direction, you just lost the game. <laughs> That's kind of how tightly wound these scenarios feel, and it's infuriating. <laughs> so I stopped playing the co-op version of this game. I mean, Legends of Andor was really close to being on this list, but there's just one problem. It never broke my heart. <laughs> and this is sounding like the kind of game I adore, so... I... Oh, well, yeah, it's right at your alley, Frank. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a copy that might be available, is what I'm No, no, yeah, see, the thing no. is, I think see, the core game is fun. I, I, it's just, oh, the I, wanted, part. I wanted the co-op part to replicate the core game. And unfortunately, the co-op part decided to do a different thing, which I could see, you know, Frank, of course, this is this does sound like something you would enjoy, but it wasn't what I was looking for. And I don't feel that they were very clear about how they were doing that. It was, of course, one of the things where it was a stretch goal, so of course they probably hadn't even developed it by the time the Kickstarter ended. 
moving from a game that I feel like had good parts and then a certain mode was ruined for me. Instead, a game that doesn't have any really good parts at all, as far as I was able to tell, is Apocrypha, which was released in 2007 by Lone Shark Games, designed by Mike Selinker. And, you know, we've kind of talked a little bit about the Pathfinder card game in this show already. And Mike Selinker helped design the original Pathfinder card game. And so I was very excited when he was like, cool, I'm going to make a new game. It'll be under my own publisher, which is Lone Shark Games is Mike Selinker's publisher. It's set in kind of like a World of Darkness type setting, right? So there's, you know, demons and monsters and vampires. The setting in and of itself is very cool. Like it's got a very evil versus good kind of classic noble bright and you know you're you're all good guys trying to desperately you know stop the evil bad things from happening but the gameplay is really bad it uses the same kind of core mechanic right of like manipulating decks as the pathfinder card game does but it makes a couple of really big missteps like the way it tells its story makes the story very confusing the pathfinder card game gave you kind of these short little paragraphs to at least set the stage in the in apocrypha instead it's there's three cards that kind of set the scene for any specific mission, right? So it's in the forest, at night, swarmed by zombies, right? And those are made-up examples. But, like, there are three cards that kind of, like, set the stage for the adventure, and they all bring specific mechanics to the game. And it's really confusing, and it's not evocative at all, right? Like, you don't really feel the story that they're trying to tell. It doesn't cohere into a single story that you're kind of experiencing. And the dice system is really terrible, because Pathfinder card game used all the dice available to D&D, minus D20s originally, they added them later, but like minus D20s, right? So it was D4s to D12s. And so if you were really bad at a thing, you would ha- roll a D4 on that thing. If you're really good at the thing, you might be rolling a D12 on that thing. And Apocrypha only uses D6s. And I was honestly kind of surprised by how much that affected how good the game was. Because now you only have this one, all you can do is add or subtract dice, right? Each die is of equal weight, Right, you're rolling dice and trying to get to a specific target number. But like adding more dice, subtracting dice, they're of equal weight. Right, You can't be like, oh, hey, here's a temporary buff that gives you a D12 instead of a D6 or whatever. And hey, now that's a really powerful card, right? Because like, it has a really big range, right? Instead, it's just D6s, and so the math just becomes a lot more boring when there are only D6s in, in this approach. There's still a part of me that's like, man, I really want to kind of just like find a group of people to, to play through it because like I think there's still some good stuff there, but... Oh, there's so many pieces that make me just sad. Yeah, the the setting in that game is really nifty, but the, the rules are just... I'm looking back at our Slack chat that we had about the time, and what I said was, I played Apocrypha tonight, and it feels like the most willfully obtuse game design since the Cones of Dunshire. <laughs> wow. Because uh, basically, other than the word discard, everything that you do with cards has a new and non-intuitive name in Apocrypha. I think what was going on is they were trying to solve for every conceivable timing issue that everyone has ever had, and the rules just quickly become completely inscrutable. To uh, further complicate their in-game verbiage, they also had the challenge of distinguishing themselves from the Pathfinder card game, which had its own slightly more intuitive definition for each of those actions. There's a number of things you can do with the cards. You can discard them. You can put them into play. You can put them on top of your deck. You could put them under your deck. You could shuffle them into your deck. And those are a little bit more straightforward in the Pathfinder card game. But all of the terms that they used for the Pathfinder card game could not be used for Apocrypha. Right, so in this game, you're doing all those same actions, but it's like, filter two cards, and warp one card, and clusterfuck three other cards, and it's just... They also messed with how players assist one another, which was a huge component of Pathfinder card game, which was more or less straightforward. There are some certain cards that can be played from your hand, to influence the number or the size of dice that somebody else was rolling. But in Apocrypha, your character has like its four stats on each side of the card. So one on the top, one on the bottom, one on the left, and one on the right. And it was like, if the player in that direction is making that kind of roll, then you can add some number of dice equal to your thing equal to the value of that card in that direction on your character card. And it was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) And I agree with Joe. I think they 
went a little too subtle on the theming of some of the cards. Because like one that stuck out to me is there's a card called Razor Blades. Mm-hmm. It's a picture of a bunch of apples. Sure, it's subtle, but I, I like get red it. delicious. They're razor blade apples. <laughs> <laughs> like that's uh, I get what they were going for, but eh. above everything else, I think the thing that hurt the game the most is the dice mechanic. I think if they would have had a bigger dice range, like you can tell a better story with a bigger dice range, right? Being limited to sixes was just like surprisingly limiting. Yeah, and oddly, they had a whole like role-playing thing attached to that game for some reason like you could play that game as just a role-playing game and i think it would work better yeah i think so because the setting is great and i'm told that the scenarios in the later two boxes in the series are better but i i can't take the energy to get there brian you just have to watch all of season one so that you can get to the good (laughs) stuff in season two so it's babylon 5 is what you're telling me (laughs) The last one I want to talk about is, the, is my most recent heartbreak, and that is Tapestry by Stonemeyer Games, uh, designed by Jamie Stegmeyer, released in 2019. This is another one that falls into the, the category of the thing I've always been looking for, which is the short civilization building game that you're not going to spend all day playing. There have been some, some good attempts on that in the past. Some of them have been pretty successful, but I have historically really liked most of Jamie Stegmeyer's game designs. This one had lots of cool sculpted bits, neat variable player powers, multiple different tech tracks, all sorts of good stuff. But uh, in practice, the technologies you learn are both super abstract, so the only thing that's thematic about them is the name, and the way you gain things means that you may discover room temperature superconductors and then a few turns later discover how to make bricks. Brian, it's worth pointing out that I had a tank factory before I had written language. Yes. <laughs> I think yes. I got like, like a you do. vision generator before I knew how to do math. Yeah, it's, uh, it's really fascinating the way technology works in this game. It is super abstract. There are power or event cards that you get to play that can be ludicrously swiggy. The variable player powers are badly imbalanced. If you hit the gaming lottery and you get the right combo, you can score 300 points. And if the cards don't fall your way, you'll be just, you know, orders of magnitude under that. And the sculpted bits, the buildings that were such a big selling point and part of the price point of the game, A, are fairly ugly. Uh, Just the color scheme (laughs) is is not really good. I like them. I like the sculpts. I don't like the paint jobs. I'll put it that way. They are also almost completely irrelevant to the game because their only real purpose is to occupy a certain number of spaces on your city grid. And since that's the only thing they do, it is particularly egregious that they are not the same size as the squares on the city grid that they are intended to fill. Yeah, which is pretty epic fail. You had one job. (laughs) I mean, it's a very swingy abstract game with a thin veneer of Civ building pasted on top, and I don't find it worth the time it takes to play. I think it's a pretty exceptional game. Wow. Yeah, totally. I mean, you've been wrong before, but this is... uh... (laughs) Oh, man. It is, however, (laughs) themed. The theme is, it's a point salady euro with But it's way too random for a euro. I'm not sure it's that random. I mean, if you look at the tapestry cards... But there are some combos that are... Yeah, I mean... I I think we all know who tapestry left Brian to date. I mean, clearly. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. I'm pretty sure in that game, because of a combination of two tapestry cards, I went infinite at the end of the first time I played. I believe you did, yes. You were over 9,000. And we all just agreed that we should just stop playing because I had won. (laughs) How do you go infinite? Combination of two tapestry cards is like every time I got a thing, I got another thing. Or let me... Which triggered the first thing. Re-get another thing, which allowed me to trigger the first thing. It was crazy. (laughs) That's weird. It was the first first time I played, and I got like an infinite number of points. It was crazy. We might have done something. We might still be playing it. It's hard. (laughs) The game does... I mean, really, the rules are two pages, which is stunning. And the way that you pretty much get kind of four choices, choose which track to advance on, is your only choice, I think is absolutely brilliant. The game is not as good as it could be, but I still actually really like it. I could see it could be some someone's heartbreaker, mostly because of that thematic shift. It's not yeah. a 4X game. It's so not a 4X game. It may be a decent game, but the yeah the disconnect between what I was looking for and what I got is just too strong for me to forgive. 
Yeah, still looking for a good 4X game. Do we have that, that good short 4X game? I like Golden Ages a lot. Oh, yeah, totally. I actually like the Siv Meyer Siv board game a lot, although it is a little longer. I like the New Dawn. New Dawn, I could take or leave. Honestly, if you want a short and fairly random Civ building game, just play Innovation. <laughs> good point. I'm also going to put a shout out to Roll Through the Ages because I feel like that's a good dice based Civ builder. Yep, I'll buy that. Actually, I just picked up a new one called Civ that looks absolutely terrifying. It's like a 30 minute and looks scary, scary, tricky, difficult. Okay. Huh. I'm willing to give it a shot. Oh, totally. Brian, we should play some more Sid Meier Civ. We should play some more board games. I know. I so let's talk about a video game. This is Dark Souls, the board game by Steamed Forge Games, 2017 Kickstarter, designed by David Carl, Alex Hall, Matt Hart, and Richard Loxum. Nailed it. Wow, this game... Sets a new game. record for the number of boxes a game can possibly come in. <laughs> yeah. So I have the benefit of having not purchased this game. My best friend, Joe, on the other hand, did. Uh, and uh, it is not that this game is terrible, although it's not great. It's fine. It's a skirmish miniatures board-based game that does a fairly decent job of replicating the action that is occurring in the Dark Souls video game. The big problem that I have with this game is that they did not do literally any work to... Make it fun? Well, yes. Make it flow. Make it flow, I think. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Before. Frank, they were simulating the Dark Souls video game, which is also not fun. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> like... It has some same issues that the Dark Souls video game has. That you die all the time? I think this goes back to the point that I made earlier, that when you are taking a thing and you are turning it from one medium into another, there are certain aspects of that thing that you are adapting that will need to be sacrificed in the name of fun. And this game did not do that. They're like, you know what's really fun? Playing the same board game over and over again for approximately four to six hours. You know what needs to be sacrificed in the name of fun? The players. The other big issue that I have here is, like, you could get past your first room, open your first treasure chest, and find this, like, uber-amazing weapon that you cannot use because <laughs> you don't have the stats to use it yet. And I'm like, man, if only they had done this, like, locking mechanism that's like, hey, the first time you go through the game, you, you're using these low-level treasures. The second time you go through, you're using these medium treasures. Like, some sort of gating mechanism that says, like, hey, if I open a treasure chest, it's not going to be junk. Which, yeah, like, I mean, granted, that's what happens in the video game. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is an excellent example of where it's actually a problem, because, like, while that does happen in the video game, the way you fix the problem in the video game that you find out and that you can't use yet is you spend a very small amount of time compared to the total length of the game to get enough stats to use it. Whereas in the board game, it's it's a ton more effort, right? In order sure. to up those stats, you have to spend souls from the things that you go out and grind. The core problem there specifically is that like, in the video game, when you do it, it's a small amount of souls, right? It's a small amount of time relative to the game investment. Because like the game of Dark Souls, you play it for the first time, it's going to take you... 30, 40 hours to play through. So if you find a new weapon and it takes you 15, 20 minutes, an hour to get enough stats to use this awesome new weapon you found, that's fine. That's not a problem. When it takes you an hour to do the same thing in a board game that's two hours, three hours long, that's a lot of time where you're not playing with this new cool thing that you got. Well, also in the video game, you basically have infinite respawns, where if I remember in the board game, you only have three, right? Something right, there's some, some limitation. Yeah, totally. Yeah. They are also a shared resource among all players. I think the other big problem that the board game has over the video game is that the video game offers other intrinsic rewards. So like when you defeat a boss, sure, you might get a weapon that you will never use, but you also get the reassuring satisfaction that you have just overcome this thing that was really hard and has stumped you for several days, weeks months. The board game doesn't have that, so its reward is loot that could just inevitably be junk. 
this one I really wanted to like, and I still want in my heart of hearts, a good Dark Souls based game. I've heard that the card game is good, but like this is an IP that deserved better than what it got. Agreed. I have the card game. I looked over the rules and read it, and it looks more focused. It looks like it has basically the same rules and ideas as the board game, but it gets rid of some of the positioning and looks like it's much more focused and fast, and you don't retread things as often, and it looks like they actually kind of took the board game and tried to make something fun. Well, I'm down. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, I'm like... So I think... <laughs> So yeah, we'll have to set it, that up. Is this literally me dumping something for a younger, hotter model? <laughs> yes, I'm a that is literally what just happened, Mike. No, Mike, 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 the game someone should clearly play instead of the Dark Souls board game is obviously Kingdom oh, Death. I know. Sure, Kingdom <laughs> Death, like, yes, granted. And technically, that's the venerable one, so it's okay. But the big question is, why is Kingdom Death better than Dark Souls? I mean, it's even more arbitrary. You can just completely wipe in, like, one bad die roll. It's the loot. I think, I think it's the loot is what it comes down to. It's like Actually, it's the story. I think from a gameplay perspective, it's a lot of it's the loot. Because, like, you never get into a situation in Kingdom Death where you find something and you can't use it. True. That's not a thing that exists in that game. Like, even as a concept. I think the other major difference that I see is the fact that there is a thing that you are building in Kingdom Death that is just not present in Dark Souls. Because, like, even if you lose, you still have this city that you have built. And, like, that is something that is almost a character unto itself in Kingdom Death that Dark Souls doesn't have. And the Dark Souls game feels kind of dry and mechanical. There's zero flavor text anywhere. It's just, you know, numbers and stats. Although the actual boss encounters are really kind of clever in Dark Souls because of the moves of the boss. They're just yeah. not as they're just not as clever as the oh my god, it's can do that from Monster. Like I said, Dark Souls had some interesting ideas. This IP I think could make a good board game. This was not it. I have a like a serial heartbreak, serial killer kind of thing going. <laughs> And on our last episode, we we mentioned Jean Dupoel's name at least twice. Designer of Carabonde and uh, Dragon Rider's been her. Done a lot of race games. I have an awful lot of his games. Most of these are self-published by his own company, Historian Spiel Gallery. They include bizarre themes. There's a game about a bunch of hunters hunting one rabbit and accidentally killing each other off. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Accidentally. <laughs> It's it's okay, but also all of his games throughout the 80s and 90s came in tubes with these gorgeous rollout vinyl mats, a hand silk screened in multiple colors, wooden pieces. If you look at Aeronautica, which I think is almost his masterpiece, that has these elaborate biplanes and a giant stand-up Eiffel Tower. The biplanes are on sticks, and they're all hand silk screened wood. The games are just freaking gorgeous. But then... I actually start to play them, they're, uh, well, clunky. I mean, his games range from really kind of almost children's games that don't work to Romeo and Juliet, which is a bizarre trick-taking game with far too many rules and cards that's done on silkscreen wooden cards, which I did keep because, oh my god, silkscreen wooden cards. Colonial Africa is a lot like uh, Source of the Nile. But even more random and arbitrary, comes with little boats with cloth sails that you sail around the coast of Africa. And again, hand silkscreen pieces. And then there's Mare Mediterranean, which came in a giant wooden silkscreen box with hinges, a huge mat, big piece of marble as its first player marker, a zillion counters. It was kind of a 4X game. It took a little too long. The rules weren't very well written, even in German. He's actually French and writes his games in German. His English is apparently really terrible. The uh, English rules are, well, there are no English rules, so they had to be translated from the German, which is supposedly pretty clunky. I feel like someone should translate them from the French. Yeah, really. Mari Mediterranean, for the most part, I actually rewrote the rules to tighten up the game and spent forever rewriting the rules. They're on the geek. I spent so much time playing various games with this guy. But yet none of them, except for Carabonde, have been, you know, really amazing. It's so sad. 
and yet and, you keep going back. Oh, and there's the American Gold Rush, 1849. That's a, <laughs> a roll and move western where you sandboxy kind of game. You can go mine and or you know shootouts or claim jump for people. But it ends up being, I think it's like a six hour game. Ugh. And a kind of tedious roll and move. It was painful. I feel like you should start seeing other designers. I don't think this is working out for you. Yeah, totally. So let's keep the uh, French theme going here. My last one to talk about is Time of Legends, Joan of Arc. Functionally, it's a, it's a series of scenarios, or they even have a battle mode with 15mm minis set during the Hundred Years' War. Some of the scenarios are historically based. Some of them are kind of mythical battles between angels and demons and stuff. There's a freaking expansion with the devil. <laughs> That you can uh, field in an army, which is pretty hilarious. I actually really enjoyed the game. The game itself is really fun. The process of getting to the game has been kind of a nightmare. Like, even as far as, as Kickstarters go, the game itself has literally over a thousand figures. That is not an exaggeration if you have everything. seems like a lot. These are tiny little 15mm figures that you have to put in their bases. They don't give you any real indication as to which figurine matches which character card or which unit card. So you have to try and figure out, like, I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to break all these out. There's no organization in the actual boxes. Literally, some of the, the units are just in plastic baggies stuffed underneath trays of other miniatures in the boxes. Yeah. And then uh, when you actually get into playing the game, there's incalculable errors in the rules. The scenarios are screwed up. They've got the tile numbers wrong. The balance is all out of whack. As a result, the fans of the game, the people who backed it, have asked them, please fix this, here's some problems, reported it. And to Mythic's credit, Mythic Games is the one who actually made this game. They've engaged the fan community. They're like, oh, here, we put up, these are our, our recent revisions. Uh, they put it up onto Google so you can actually annotate it yourself, and we'll put it into the corrections. And then fans spent time doing that. You can look at all the notes. You're like, oh, wow, they call these problems, and here's all these balance fixes they proposed and then they'll release the new one that they've made and they forgot half the things that people told them about they're still their errors and they <laughs> the, the typos and the misspellings and they're wrong it's a mess and you know to add on top of this some of the the rewards from the kickstarter was they made their own raw rpg system for it they shipped the english-speaking people the french version <laughs> and they shorted people on a couple figures in early december of last year they had started another Kickstarter for a version 1.5 with new units and blah, 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 and a hardbound version of all these corrected scenarios that they're doing. The backers noticed that there was a takedown notice <laughs> on the actual uh, the Kickstarter. And let me see, I even got this corrected quoted here. This content has been removed by Kickstarter due to an intellectual property dispute. Turns out that the guy who built the game with them, Pascal Bernard, is suing them <laughs> over a contract dispute. Oh, boy. So... <laughs> <laughs> Which has been resolved. But... It has been resolved, yes. It yeah. got resolved very, very recently. It resolved amicably, and now he's going to have final say on whatever finished corrections they're going to have. It's just one of those where it's like every time you get an update from the Kickstarter, you're like, okay, what what happened this time, guys? <laughs> just 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 break it to us gently. We just need to, you know, if you're like, <laughs> how many more, uh, how many more uh, ups and downs can we have with this? I mean, fortunately, the game itself is fun. It's just, man, you had to go through so much to get here. <laughs> and so many boxes. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an entire box of castle walls that's the size of my house. <laughs> <laughs> Did they just make like a, a build your own life-size castle, but make all the pieces like miniature scale? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, the siege set's basically what you're describing. Yeah, it's mm. it's ridiculous. Like if you go in the geek, like the some of the images of people who have painted these sets and put them out on the table, like it's a giant table hog. They sold a uh, play mat with it that maybe two maps in the entire game fit on. <laughs> it's just yeah. such a gigantic table hog. But There's a dragon miniature that uh, outclasses the Kingdom Death miniatures so oh, yeah, far, and is only topped by that giant Cthulhu. So yeah, it's just one of the things. Just like here's all the you know the the <laughs> all the um, stereotypes about a Kickstarter. You know, delays and costing more than you expect, and issues with rules, and like it's just compounded, and every possible thing that could go wrong <laughs> seems to. That being said, I've received everything I'm supposed to at this point, so that's good. I'm just waiting for them to correct the scenario so it's more playable. <laughs> I know. 
And Mythic seems kind of messy. It makes me uh, just kind of nervous about Solomon Kane because it's Solomon Kane and they better not screw that up. Considering it's already a year delayed and they still haven't really proven to us that they <laughs> finished it yet. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what I really love, though, is that as bad as Mythic is, Jason keeps going back to them. Uh, to be fair, I did not back their last two projects, so you be quiet. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That's good. That's improvements. <laughs> what were their last two projects? Uh, Hell of the Last Saga, and Oops. they did that Steam Runners game, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, Steam. true. Was that, was that Oops you saying that you backed that one, Frank? I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say Jason keeps going back to them? I mean, well, I mean, let's let's be clear here. We've all got problems. We've all, as we said earlier, we've all got a type, and we keep chasing it no matter how many times it burns us. That is the nature of mankind. Uh, someday we might learn. No, no. Nah, no probably no. not. So that is a list of some of the games that have led us to drink ourselves to tears. Hopefully we've been able to at least provide some entertainment to you, the listener, and or warn you from some games that you might have thought were good and maybe we'd save you the trouble. Or maybe you'll like them, despite the fact that we don't, but that's okay. I mean, I think I'm more curious to see what heartbreaks our listeners have. So. Yeah, no, I would, I would love to find out games that our listeners wanted to love and were wrecked by. So, and uh, see how many of them are my favorite. I mean, <laughs> on the cut list, Joe put Scythe, which is in my top five. So Joe's just wrong. Yeah, That's all I, I mean, can say. not all games are for all people. Yeah. Right, so anyway, um, thanks for listening. Hope everybody stays safe out there. We're hoping that things will start returning to normal soon, but I'm, I'm not going to place a bet on it. And in the meantime, just um, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Ascent of Board Games, which is protected by the Creative Commons license. Opening and closing music is Evening Melodrama by Kevin MacLeod via Incompetech.com. Full details can be found at ascentofboardgames.com. Please share, like, subscribe, review, and comment on this podcast. And thank you for listening. I'm sorry, are you guys not existing entirely within the confines of the internet now? What's wrong with you? Ascend already! <laughs>